Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. This week I have with my, me Sarah Davidow, did I get it right? Yes. <laughs> Who is, uh, is it director would be the position? Yeah, that's right. Director of the Western Massachusetts Recovery Learning Community. And I'm excited to have her. I've been wanting to have somebody, uh, an activist from this world for a long time. And Sarah comes highly recommended. I've also watched her work over the years, a few postings on Madden America. So um, Robert Whitaker is uh, one person we have in common. With that, could you uh, tell us what the Western Mass Recovery Learning Community is, what it's about? Sure, so the Western Mass Recovery Learning Community has been around since 2007 in a formal funded sort of way, but basically we are a community of people who have experienced a number of different life interrupting challenges and you know we've come to define that quite broadly. So we're a community made up of people who've been given psych diagnoses and experienced tracings in the psychiatric system, but also people who've experienced trauma, uh, homelessness and, and being unhoused, problems with substances, etc. And we believe so much in this idea that we gain a lot of wisdom in going through the journey that we have gone through and that we're continuing to go through and that there's a lot of power in sharing what we've learned about navigating systems, trying to survive, moving through some of the things that have happened to us and building the lives that we want. Though, you know, when we first became funded in 2007, we had a pretty narrow focus of peer support and peer-to-peer networks. And over the years, realizing that we wanted to have more impact on the broader world, we've actually grown into having four parts. So we have a peer support part that is where our groups exist. Our, we have a peer respite where people can stay as an alternative to hospitalization. We have community centers that people can go to. Uh, a number of different things in that peer support piece, but then we also have opportunities to access alternative healing supports like acupuncture, Reiki, things like that, that are free, uh, not because we think they're the answer for everyone, but because most people don't have an opportunity to access them if they don't have really good insurance or money or some other resources and we want people to have more choice. Yeah. And we have also have uh, an advocacy portion that includes individual advocacy, but also is about informing people of their rights and getting involved in protests and activism at the statewide, but also the national and sometimes even the international level. And then we have a learning opportunities part, which is where we do, we do a lot of trainings, particularly on hearing voices, alternative suicide, trauma. Uh, we just started piloting an anti-oppression training. So a lot of training activity, and we also produce books and films. Um, so I could get more into that if you're interested. Well, no, I mean, that's just, that's tremendously impressive. And it's 
far beyond what I expected the answer to be. Um, so I take it you're over a pretty broad geographical area? So certainly, in spite of our name, uh, you know, we do cover a lot more. But, you know, our focus, the focus of many of our direct supports that we offer is based in Western Massachusetts. But the reality is we do, we offer a lot more online supports now. There's a Discord server that we operate and online groups. And we see people come not only from this country, but also even beyond this country to that and some of the online trainings we offer. And then we do have some more nationally based contracts and aims uh, as far as our training goes. So yeah, we're working with Cal people in California, Colorado, Wisconsin, so on, as far as our training and even outside of the country. Um, one of the parts of our training and learning is, I mentioned alternatives to suicide, and that is an approach that we developed. And so we've also done trainings on alternatives to suicide in Canada and Australia. Wow. Wow. So is this a one-woman show, or do you have a team, or is it volunteer-based, or...? No, I, you know, originally in its visioning, so I certainly had a leadership role in the visioning process, but even then there were 30 to 40 of us, depending on the time, even during the visioning process before we were funded, who are all people who have our own histories in these systems or with these experiences that wanted to help vision and develop the defining values and mission of what this could become. And it's continued to be a group effort. We have uh, maybe somewhere between 40 and 50 employees at this point. Some of them have permanent hours and some of them are more, you know, come in as needed. Mm -hmm. But we also, I mean, we do have volunteers, but I think that particularly since our roots are around the mental health system and, and people who have psychiatric histories of some sort, that there's so many people who are living on extremely limited incomes and have ex experienced living in poverty in, in you know, at great length. And so we really try to steer clear of too much emphasis on volunteering to do the sort of bulk of the labor and really trying to get people paid reasonably for that, which is a struggle, absolutely. And we also, you know, really value volunteers, but we wouldn't want to make that our main underpinning. Yeah. In a way, it sounds like you're hearkening back to a time in the earlier part of the 20th century when social work was just that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, social work is, if you look at its roots and its values, it certainly is much more community and social justice oriented than what it has become. And so, yeah, I can see making that connection, though I don't know that it ever had the really strong connection of like learning from what you've lived, as opposed to degrees and, and schooling and things like that. You know, but yeah, it, if we went back to a while, there'd be much more of a closer relationship than there is in current day social work yeah i mean my own experience um i never I'm, I'm just continually stunned and it's really to the extent to which i was sort of just you know me and everyone but i was colonized with these ideas that these things are individual pathologies mm -hmm. and i'm defective you know some psychological vulnerability met heroin and away we go and how deeply internalized that is. Yep. It's like, really, you have to work to keep thinking around that. Um, maybe a little talk about your own journey, how you wound up here. Sure. Yeah, I, so I'm not quite sure 
where to start, but I, I guess I'll, you know, I'll say like, I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and emotional and physical abuse as well. And I think that I spent a lot of years trying to figure out what to do with that and struggling. And I intersected with the mental health system fairly late on, I would say, compared to some of the people I work with. So I was 17. I think when I saw my first therapist, I had managed to evade that. And I, you know, usually when I'm sharing some piece of my story, I'm clear to say like some of that was about privilege. You know, I grew up in Connecticut in a pretty wealthy part of Connecticut and I'm white. So with those two things in mind, I think that was somewhat protective as far as, you know, the foster care system not getting involved and the mental health system not getting involved sooner. But when I was 17, I, I was out of my home at that point and I just was not really able to leave uh, the place that I was living on my own and a lot of things were going on for me emotionally. So I sought out a therapist and instead of asking, you know, what happened to you? <laughs> What's going on with you? You know, what brought you to this point? She just listened to, you know, kind of this list of, of quote unquote symptoms and diagnosed me with major depression and basically told me I had a chemical imbalance that I would have for the rest of my life and that I could probably expect to get on and be on psychiatric drugs to help correct that. And she also, when I did at a later point, try to bring up some of the abuse that had happened in my family home, she was somewhat disbelieving of that. So, you know, I, I really, I struggled with that experience. And yet at the time, she was also providing an answer where no one had provided me any sort of answer before. And so I was happy to have gotten a diagnosis and I was happy to try the psychiatric drugs, but the reality is at least that first time around that I tried the psychiatric drugs, it kept me up for two weeks, which was not especially useful. And so uh, one of the things I say too quite frequently in my writing and my work is that non-compliance saved my life. Mm, I, I, I remember that, yeah. I love that by the way. <laughs> so yeah, non-compliance is, I think in the way that the system uses it quite violent language. It's something that replicates the trauma I experienced. So as a kid, and I think for a lot of us who've experienced trauma, we get told by the people who hurt us that if we're not doing what they want us to do, that we are bad somehow. And then I get into this mental health system that tells me if I'm not doing what it wants me to do, that I'm bad. And there's a lot of other messages that get replicated. So in general, I think it's quite violent language, but I, I've reclaimed it in that way to say that it's ultimately what saved to a number of other contortions in order to try and figure out what was going on for me. And that involved moving places. There was a point at which I moved to Florida and found myself with another therapist who, you know, similarly just asked me not questions about what had happened to me, but questions about what was I doing? Was I having unprotected sex? Was I cutting and burning myself? Was I drinking a lot? You know, all these things to which I was saying yes to. And so she gave me more diagnoses. And that was what led to my, at that point, I was not so happy to be getting more and more diagnoses and it didn't feel like an answer because things hadn't gotten better after my first diagnosis. What kind of time frame were we talking from, from the first one to Florida? So 17 was my first diagnosis. And then, you know, I can sort of continued to struggle and I was 19 when I moved to Florida and went to that second therapist. You know, so I, I don't think I was ever 
super consistent about seeing anyone for any long period of time and certainly not with following their, their so-called treatment recommendations. But it was 19 when I got more diagnoses layered on. Again, because I had some privilege, I was able to kind of fall apart in my house and not have people looking in and still, you know, sometimes be able to get enough help from a family member or something to pay my rent and, and just sort of subsist barely. But when that happened, that was another turning point, both because I felt like, oh yeah, you know, I'm not so sure about this anymore, but also because that system started looking at me more intensely in a way that I wasn't used to, particularly because I was cutting and burning a lot and they were seeing that as a product of uh, suicidal intention. And so that led to my first hospitalization. And you know, uh, there's a discrepancy between what I will tell you and what my files would tell you my files would say it was a voluntary hospitalization. I will tell you it was involuntary because they did this thing that they like to do, which is to say, you have a choice. Yeah, you right. can either go voluntarily or <laughs> we will force you. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I ended up in, in the hospital and more of the same of people not really asking me why was I cutting and burning, which there were answers to, but they just weren't asking those questions. And it just became this struggle where I decided, you know, hey, I've got the resources to move away again. This system's getting to know me a little too well. I've got it now. I need to not talk to the system and I need to move somewhere where the system doesn't know me. So I moved to a different place back in Massachusetts where I still am. And my next approach was to try and figure myself out by entering a clinical role. And so I did, I, I entered into a clinical provider system in a clinical role, although I had no clinical degrees whatsoever. And I did quite well in that role, but it required a lot of energy from me to keep separate, uh, that I was struggling in the ways I was, and then, you know, sort of pass at work as being totally fine. And uh, there was a point at which when I had my son, that a lot of things happened all at once and all, I just didn't have enough energy to keep it all separate anymore with an infant and my house, the pipes uh, froze where I was living and it all fell apart. And then I was still dealing with all the stuff I'd already been dealing with. And so at that point I decided to come out and my coming out looked like me and another coworker who admitted that he also had been diagnosed putting creating an organization online and putting our stories or a piece of our stories online. And within 24 hours of doing that, the organization that I had been working for for five years at that point called me and questioned whether or not I was competent to return to the job that they'd basically been praising me for, for five years. And uh, yeah, and I, and I did return, but I'd lost all my credibility in that process and they started really micromanaging me and scrutinizing everything I was doing and I filed a discrimination complaint against them and at the end of the investigation I got fired. So how many years now have elapsed since the first um, therapist? 17 to where are we now? Uh, so I guess I was I was still in my 20s um, yeah, so I think I was had moved into you know into my later twenties at that point. Uh, and so you've done a lot of recon in enemy territory, so to speak. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you had you had a real sense of the system from consumer oh, yeah. provider. Um, Absolutely. I and I saw. I would imagine a battery of diagnoses and different meds. 
yeah, I think I had about six diagnoses at that point and, uh, you know, maybe a dozen different psych drugs I had been on at that point. Certainly not as in deep as some of my coworkers had been, again, because I just kept, I just didn't stick with it for long or I used my resources to move away or what have you. So it, my story is not as awful as, as others that I am aware of. But at that point, absolutely. I had a lot of that, I call it my diagnosis tale because as they give you new ones, they don't take the other ones away. So it just sort of grows yeah. and grows. <laughs> but uh, you know, when I saw terrible things happening in that organization, that just reinforced my thinking that this was not a system I could trust. You know, so I saw groups of providers get together and talk about how, well, they really want to get this person into long-term hospital, and yet he doesn't right now qualify for short-term hospital, which would need to be the first step. So let's agitate him enough that we can section him. Like I was, I, I witnessed those uh -oh. conversations, and that's just one example. And you know, when I would speak up, I, you know, I would start to get in trouble, of course. Uh, one of my, my favorite memories of getting in trouble is when a big group of directors had gotten together and were talking about how, oh, how the quote-unquote clients manipulate the system. And I raised my hand and I said, like, well, you know when you, like, go to the cops when you're not supposed to, when you ask them to do something, to take this person in on a Section 35 for substance use or what have you, like, aren't you manipulating the system? That was not a popular question. <laughs> but, you know, there's a real, you know, lack of insight is a common phrase that is used against us, those of us with psychiatric histories, to justify the treatment that they might force on us. But I would say the system has a real lack of insight or denial about what they're doing. Right. Non-compliance is itself symptomatic. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I, when I got fired there, that happened to coincide with the visioning process for this work. And so I was lucky in that way. And that is ultimately what led me here. And, and what I found was if I was not trying to hide a lot of things and keep everything separate, I had a lot more energy to get things done. I could be a whole person. And so that's made a big difference. So you must have had some aha moments along the way with research. I mean, you know, for me, I was getting a, a master's degree in counseling psych. And I had this teacher who was a very unpopular teacher, although I liked her. And she came into abnormal psych one day and told us um, basically that the chemical imbalance theory was an urban legend. And this was like in 2001 or something. And I mean, her popularity took another huge hit with that. <laughs> but myself and a classmate, this woman who's a wonderful person, we were like, wait, 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 what did you say? And that was like an aha moment because suddenly all my background in the system started, you know, I started seeing, oh, oh, wait, wait, that's why this happened. That's what this was. Right. So you must have had a bunch of those, right? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been quite a path. You know, when I entered, even when I first took that job that I just mentioned in the clinical system, I still believed a lot of these things. I knew the system hadn't worked so well for me, but I still fundamentally believed all the things that I was being told because I'd heard them all my life. You know, I did go briefly to study psychology in college. Uh, so I heard it there. And I also heard it growing up on pharmaceutical commercials, which of course we are one of two countries that even allows pharmaceutical commercials and really New Zealand 
is allowed to but doesn't too often. So we're really the only country in the world that allows for those commercials. And so chemical imbalance is a marketing tool of the pharmaceutical systems or pharmaceutical companies, and they know it. You know, one of the articles I wrote from Mad in America at one point, I found a pharmaceutical industry website and they were talking about the different marketing things that they use. And certainly chemical imbalance was in there. And so was the reality. So one of the articles I found said, you know, we know that the commercials where we have to list out all the negative effects of each psychiatric drug is not our best marketing tool. It's great, but it doesn't, it's not great because we have to sell those bad things too. So our best marketing tool is going to be those advocacy organizations that go out and perpetuate those myths like the chemical imbalance, et cetera. They weren't calling them myths. They're basically saying these are, this is our advertising or those advocacy groups. Uh, and you know, they're using advocacy differently than I would, but they're talking about like NAMI, et cetera. Yeah. Those that are still perpetuating chemical imbalance ideas and all that. Right. Who conveniently fail to tell you that they're getting all their money from big pharma. Right. And even if you do research, you really have to know what you're looking for because there's the direct funding and there historically at least has also been times when pharmaceutical companies have just paid for an employee that's still on their books, but given them to places like NAMI to, to do lobbying and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot of money going between those, those groups. So it sounds like you had a couple allies, but not many. And that the, if the ones you did have were probably in terms of their learning curve were probably where you were roughly. So you get, you get this beautiful idea, but it, it sounds to me like it was one of those things where you didn't know what you didn't know. Right. And yeah. so, I mean, that's, that's how these systems work is they convince you to oppress yourself. That's the most effective tool in the end is if you can convince people, if you can get them to internalize these messages, then you don't have to do too much to maintain the path. So how did it start evolving? Did you find other uh, like-minded people, researchers, Whitaker? I mean, wh where did it all start to go? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it is certainly it did, it, it helped that the system had failed me so much that I felt so harmed that I'd experienced this force that I experienced when I was in Florida. So that, you know, didn't make me realize just how deeply uh, things ran, but I, I was on a track to think that there must be something different. And then some of it was connecting with people in my local community who were also questioning and realizing I wasn't alone in that. Uh, then, yeah, you know, certainly connecting with Madden America and Robert Whitaker's material helped, though I was pretty far along in uncovering some of this when I got there. You know, I think I'm a very, as much public speaking as I do, I'm, I'm quite introverted and analytical and, and question a lot of things. And so I think, you know, that's where a lot of my non-compliance is rooted. And so I just was hearing more and more stories from people in my spaces and I was connecting with more spaces for, with people who were pushing back on the system and I, you know I couldn't point to one moment when it was like oh it was this article or this book or this person but it just became really clear to me that I needed to start looking deeper and you know at this point there's so much out there there's so many articles there's so much research that says that what the mainstream believes what we're told is just full of holes you know yeah of it is just and I do think you know that's true of not just the mental health system but really of, 
of most of our systems. They're, they're quite similar. You know, for example, if you look at the research on forced incarceration in a psychiatric hospital, uh, you'll see things like the suicide rate is higher when someone leaves that hospital. And that's the same as if you force someone into a detox, the overdose rate is higher upon release. You know, there's a lot of patterns that people aren't talking about in the mainstream world, but that really, I think once you start to unravel it, you just learn more and more and more. So at a point, so I, you know, a lot of my questions are sort of uh, reflective of my own journey or process. So, you know, I'm white and male and uh, heterosexual and fairly, not super privileged, but fairly. And so when I finally get, um, first of all, I refuse diagnoses. So, you know, I could admit I was a heroin addict, but the second you tried to tell me I was bipolar, I was like, this is not the time to make that diagnosis. <laughs> Yeah. So I'd never gotten on the psych meds. I never accepted that. I was at a horrible experience on a methadone program. But then eventually recovery comes. And what I'm beginning to realize now all these years later is the degree to which I internalized a kind of Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, swimming upstream, you know, kind of almost a heroic narrative. And that it really diminished both the impact of trauma mm -hmm. and also the social sort of etiology of trauma. Mm -hmm. right? And it took, you know, it took being in recovery for years and finally realizing, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot of unresolved trauma here. There's, you know, narrow constricted emotional range and startle response and interpersonal stuff and all that. Did did you did that become? Were you aware of that early on that we are we are basically traumatizing people when we're saying we're helping them? Did you have that? Did you figure that out quickly? Oh, your volume is off somehow. Am I? Is it? There you go. Okay, I don't know what happened with that. I, you know, I think, I think it was gradual. I think I, I recognized pieces of it as I went, certainly not at 17, even though I knew I had been through a lot of painful things. I did not make a lot of the connections that I can make now looking back. By the time I got to 19, it was pretty clear to me that the experiences I was having in that system were really harmful and felt kind of like some of the harm I'd experienced in some of my earlier years. And I started to make some relationships. Like, you know, I think this is a tricky comparison, but as someone who has been raped, for example, uh, being in these environments where, you know, these large men are standing over you, sometimes restraining people, watching you sleep, you know, it's like you just start to be these yeah. comparisons that don't make a lot of sense. And when I think what made it clearest to me is that when I started to have those questions and I would approach people working in the system about them, there was no real awareness or willing to discuss those things. There was a real like, no, you, you know, this is, we're doing this for your own good. This is, this is what it needs to be. And, you know, whatever you're talking about, it's off base. And I think when 
when I see such cognitive dissonance in people, when I see like, you know, like when I see them in such, you know, denial or, or what have you and, and justifying things, it just, I think it, you know, was in my twenties that I'm like, oh yeah, there's, there's nothing about this that makes any sense. You know, I didn't, I still don't know that I, I, I quite realized all the research and how flawed it was that that was out there and, and that pharmaceutical companies could be on TV and just completely be lying about it. But um, I think that that came over time, but I, but by my twenties, I was certainly realizing that nobody was asking me why I was cutting and burning myself. Nobody was asking questions. And even when I would bring it up, they would try and move beyond it. And yeah, I just, I don't know. It's sort of puzzling to me and, and, you know, maybe, I don't, maybe it shouldn't be, but it feels puzzling to me that more people don't see it sooner than they do. But I think that there's a real drive in the society for easy answers and, you know, making people happy and doing what you're supposed to that I think really, I don't know, helps contain people. Yeah, it's striking. Um, I went through this thing a little while ago where so uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic came out and I read it and I got to know Robert a little bit and I circulated the book and I internalized it and you know, you know, I brought it into my work. And then I would read Madden America and I would certainly see these things happening in Europe. You know, very creative Norway, Finland. And I'm thinking, and also I'm noticing with my clients' parents, I'm actually noticing that they're getting a little more dubious and a little more sophisticated about, you know, because the kids have been in treatment so many times, they're just sort of sick of it. So I'm feeling like we're making some progress. And then the opioid epidemic really gets turned up higher, around fentanyl and all that. And suddenly they're just back at it again. You know, they've got this magic bullet, you know, Suboxone, and it's the gold standard, and you are, a, you are a Trump supporter if you say otherwise. That was one thing that really got me is the way that the progressives seem to buy into the narrative more than the conservatives. And so just when I feel like we're making some progress, it's like they bring all the resources they have to bear on a crisis and now you know now i'm back to it feels like phase one in this battle although i think that's i do think that's an overstatement um i do encounter more sophisticated you know affected others and, and addicts themselves yeah i mean i think i think that it's much harder to change the things that are harming us but i wish what what people would understand is like, yeah, it would be it's easier to give someone a pill than say, let's eradicate child abuse, you know? So right. I, I, I get like the, the effort to deny, I mean, it's also, you know, within a system that is really focused on, on capitalism, whatever you make of capitalism, it's hard to deny that, you know, the pill makes money and stopping child abuse would cost money. <laughs> so like, you know, what do you, what do you do with that? I think there's a real drive to pursue those things, but I don't know. I think it's really, it, it's gotten harder, I hope, for people to deny that, you know, talking about, even if you can't fix the trauma, just having space to name it 
and to be able to talk about it allows people some space to move through that has been denied in the past. And there's just a growing body of evidence that says, oh, and that actually helps. You know, So right. psych drugs, the therapy, the, the psychiatric hospitalization, they have a really poor record of helping. And certainly in my circumstance, they, they really didn't help. Uh, but, you know, like I pull out so one of my more extreme experiences after I had two miscarriages before I had my daughter, um, you know, I did, I did see visions once my daughter was born and they were telling me to harm her. And I knew well enough at that point not to tell anybody because I'd had enough bad experiences with the system and mothers in particular who have thoughts or hear voices or see visions telling them to hurt their kids are not well liked in the society. So I had that experience. Had I entered into the system at that point, I'm sure they would have contained me, they would have drugged me, they would have taken my kids perhaps and put them into the disaster of a foster care system. But what helped me was just making meaning of that experience. What helped me was sitting in a group with other people where they didn't fix the fact that I had miscarriages or anything else, but I had space to realize that the visions weren't telling me to hurt my baby, they were telling me I blamed my body for these miscarriages that I had experienced as really traumatic over the course of a year. And once I made that connection, the visions lost their power and started to fade away. Mm -hmm. But how many people get that opportunity? How many people get that opportunity to make that meaning, recognize the impact of trauma, talk about it, name it out loud, potentially within a you know, pretty small, safe group, and then move on with life? That's not what our system is designed to do. Our system is kind of designed to numb people out and contain them and make things chronic. So what's the power of story? So story is a tricky thing at this point. I think that there's a certain power that's being taken away from a lot, a lot of our movements. Uh, you know, I think there's these common components of systemic oppression, all these different types of systemic oppression. If you take a group that's been marginalized, one thing that they can still be seen as having value in is like entertainment. So sometimes I see this sort of, this is not a phrase that I came up with, but like recovery porn, so to speak, like people being asked to tell their stories often for free, to pull on people's heartstrings, but then not being taken seriously when they say, and now I want to be at the table to talk about how to change these systems. Right. Uh, so that is one of the risks of story, I guess, but I think the power of story is just in, you know, letting us all know that we're not alone and all the wisdom that we have gained that when shared with others can give permission like it gave to me to, to pause and make meaning in a way that is not conventionally what we're taught or, you know, that, you know, again, lets me know that I'm not alone or just lets me talk about things. I think a lot of, there's a fair amount of research at this point that says that shame is a huge driving factor in what keeps people stuck in some of these places, especially, you know, when people have experienced trauma and they're not allowed to speak about it and they're treated and they're numbed out, it's really hard to move through. But story often gives us permission to also let go of some of that shame. So almost every time, I, you know, it took me some time. I did not share this story about the visions in my daughter for a couple of years after it had stopped. And then it felt safe because I could say, no, no, don't take my kid. That was a while ago. It's all gone now. And I started sharing it. I've shared it, you know, in several places in this country. I've shared it in Australia. I've shared it in Canada. And almost every single time, 
a mother comes up to me and says, you know, I've had something similar. I've had something similar. I never thought I could say that out loud. I don't want to lose my kid. Thank you for saying that out loud. However, about a year ago, January, I shared that story as a part of a role play in a training, an assist suicide prevention training, because, you know, honestly, I was trying to push back on some of the beliefs people in that training had. So I used that example as a way to push back. And I explained to them what happened. I explained how long ago it was. I explained how much I never thought I was actually going to hurt my daughter and what was going on and what helped and what didn't help. But that was a clinical group with being led by clinicians and mostly populated by clinicians. And two days after I got home from that training, I got a phone call from the Department of Children and Families because one of the clinicians had reported me. And I did what I think a lot of us do when we get mad. I went on social media and I posted about it and I tagged that organization. And I said, you know, this is why people do things like kill themselves without reaching out for help because people don't actually listen. They don't listen. They're so narrow in their view and they harm people by forced hospitalization, breaking up families, what have you. And, and then the next thing I knew, I got a phone call from the police because, because I had tagged them and because I said, this is why people just kill themselves. They're like, oh, she's a suicide risk. Need to send the cops to do a wellness check. And they, they sent them to my work because that's the address they had. So I had cops going all over my work, interacting with the, the IT people and the human resources people looking for me. And they finally just called me on my cell phone to say that they were looking for me. But, you know, I, I compare the response of these clinicians to the response of the actual community that is most impacted and is most struggling to my being able to share my story. And that's a pretty vast difference. And it's pretty absurd because by the time I was doing that, you know, my daughter's eight now, she's almost nine. So she was eight, uh, maybe seven when that happened. It was years after that had happened. Right. Still did that. Well, it seems to speak to how these, these, these assumptions and these organizations and all of this, it, it, it has a mind of its own, not very, an automatic mind. And it's not like you can even point to diabolical players. It was that bitch who did it. It's more like it's it's diffused through the group. The group. Right. Yeah, I mean, actually, one of the analogies that I use that actually I got from Bob Whitaker, although he said if he didn't come up with it, I forget where he said it came from, is just that of a rotten barrel. You know, there's a lot of apples that are not rotten in that rotten barrel. And they're trying to be good apples. <laughs> but yeah. if the barrel is rotten, then it impacts everyone. Everyone in that barrel becomes complicit with it in some way. And that's really what I see happening. It's so hard. You know, and it mirrors in some ways this conversation about defunding the police and good cops and bad cops. You know, I keep saying to people, it's not about the good cops or the bad cops or the bad social workers or bad clinicians or whatever. It's about the system. Any, the best cop the best clinician working in these systems is going to end up being complicit with pieces of that, no matter what the intent is, because the systems are so problematic. Not to mention it'll destroy their idealism and probably leave them shamed and depressed. Um, So, you know, I'm hearing so many fascinating things here. So, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of seeing in my work is that, 
the power of narrative, um, but also the peril, power of claiming your narrative and not ceding your narrative to whatever authority it is, even the progressive ones. That what really, you know, having the, the wherewithal to say, what, what really is my truth at this moment? I can always revise it in light of experience. And so you're describing that and um, the narrative, there's, a, there's no venue, there's not a venue, at least in that situation, for it to actually be heard. So there's violence and, and not even not be heard. It's grossly misinterpreted. Um, and then I start looking at some of the narratives that we adopt uh, in the recovery world. And, and so I came up with a narrative that was, I didn't know this, but you know, when you tell your story as a 12 stepper, especially if it's white middle-class AA, you know, I had, I, my parents were married for 50 years. They were college educated. They loved me. The expectation is that I would go to college and then sometime around sixth grade, I got this sort of perverse idea that maybe I should smoke weed. Mm -hmm. And I told that narrative for years. You know, my parents weren't demons, but you know. And then one day I'm telling that thing in a dinner party or something, my wife is there and her jaw drops and she's like, what the fuck are you telling these people? You're lying. And I'm like, what? And so now, you know, I realize my narrative is, you know, racially charged urban environment, ripe with violence, sexual abuse, uh, chronic fear, you know. And so the narratives change, but when the narrative like changes that way, that, that means that you're the whole, if everyone adopted that narrative, they've really got close to their trauma and stress dislocation, then the recovery culture itself would have to change. Mm -hmm. And, well, that's where I'm at now. Um, and that's a tough one. Yeah, you know, I think the culture around even that word recovery is different in the different sort of like silos that we get put in yeah. as well. And, you know, so for me, I went through this process that in spite of the name of our organization, I think a couple of years into being a part of this organization, someone in a hospital group or something asked me, well, how long have you been in recovery? And I think, you know, within the, in this world, it's harder to count. Like, I think that person might have been connected to the 12 step world. And I know there is like a really clear sort of counting that happens there. <laughs> but with me, I was like, well, do I start counting the first time I took psych drugs, the last time, first time I was in therapy, the last time I was forced into hospital? Like, when do I start counting? And what I had to realize for myself was that the language of recovery itself feels to me like it came out of a system. And I'm not trying to take it away from anybody else. But for me, what I want to say to people at this point who ask me those sorts of questions are, you know, why is what you call life with all its ups and downs, what I'm supposed to call recovery for the rest of my life, simply because I was in this system and I was diagnosed at some point. And so I really, for me, it's been so important to make meaning of all these words and decide which ones do and don't fit and keep peeling away the layers of the onion or whatever you want to visualize so that I can get out of that box entirely. Yeah. And there's so much that comes with that box certainly in the quote unquote mental health world that comes with, you know, oh, it's a lifelong process and, 
you know, you have to do it this way or you're in denial or you have to use these words. And, and for me, it's just been really important to, to move beyond that and realize that, you know, even within these, some of these activist circles, there's still a lot of internalized stuff that we're carrying around. And, you know, that, that's not to say that everyone needs to give up the word recovery or anything like that. And, and maybe there is a way to reclaim it in a way that makes sense. But I just, I haven't yeah. Found it yet. I mean, <laughs> that's why I'm leaning towards resistance because yeah. I don't want to recover this, the, the sixth grader. Yeah. I want to resist the forces that drove him to those behaviors. Right. Um, do you, do you find that people are amenable to talking about what these, these words mean and the importance of us examining the language as a way of examining our own assumptions? Is that something that's part of your work? It's certainly part of my work. I do trainings on language, even, you know, with some of the other trainings we do, we talk about language. Uh, you know, I just got through facilitating a two-day when conversation turns to suicide, and I shared my story, and I shared that piece about recovery in there, and people don't necessarily say, like, absolutely, I'm adopting that, but they're willing to have those conversations in those environments, and, and that is often a mix of clinicians and people in peer roles and people, you know, family, et cetera, it's, you know, often a pretty broad range, but more often, you know, while I see some willingness, more often, you know, it's like this confirmation bias. People pull out of whatever they want to hear in my story that does resonate for them. <laughs> and then they kind of want to move beyond that. So, you know, I've also had experiences where I've told stories of the trauma I've been through and, I, I've even stood there and talked about how, you know, when people refer to me as mentally ill, for example, that it erases the people who harmed me, like it gives them a pass, it erases my story and it gives them a pass. You know, it's almost as if someone's saying, well, we hear that you were raped and you were sexually abused and that people hurt you and that's bad, but that's over here. The problem is still in your head. It's still coming from your brain. And if there weren't something wrong with your brain, those things wouldn't have affected you in that way. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about how that impacts me, and then I'll be done. And then the next presenter will refer to me as like the face of mental illness or something. So you know, like they hear what they want to hear a lot of the time. What do you think about this term resilience? That's getting um, more currency now. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's. <sighs> A lot of these terms, they have some bit of value. Resilience has some bit of value. Uh, Trauma-informed has some bit of value, but then they become these buzzwords and they, they in some ways can be weaponized against us. So resilience is a word that I am most often hearing at this point as something that gets weaponized that almost goes back to that pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of idea. In other words, like, you know, yeah, all these bad things happen to you and we can't change that, but we believe in your ability to overcome it independently because of the strength you have within you. And what does that say about you if you don't? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, so it's pretty charged. And yet, you know, there's some value in there, this idea that, you know, our brains have a lot of neuroplasticity and we do have a lot of potential to overcome, but, you know, that, that idea loses its shape when it becomes this buzzword that's just kind of used as this, well, you know, you're, you're resilient, so why don't you figure it out? You know? Yeah, right. Or you're not resilient. Right. So you're not, you're not in that group of people that can ever claim health again. Right. 
Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm under the impression that Western Massachusetts is something of a hotbed for this kind of activism in the United States. Is, is, am I correct in that? I mean, that's, that's my experience in that is some of what I hear, you know, because of the training we do, I've done a fair amount of traveling. And, you know, I can usually find some people in each area that are of like mind or are looking for more of, of what we're offering. But it does, it is concentrated. And I think that that's for several reasons. One of them is, you know, Western Massachusetts is more just of an alternative mind in a lot of different ways than say even the other side of our state. And part of that is about not being near the big teaching hospitals. So for example, New York City, Boston, you know, these places that have the huge investments in medical ways of thinking about things tend to have a harder time developing other stuff, even though it seems like there's lots of people and lots of resources there. It's just hard to sustain when you have these medicalized forces all around you. Um, so that's one thing. There's also, you know, even before the RLC, there was something called the Freedom Center, which never really, like, it wasn't like a physical space, but it was a group of people who saw themselves as survivors of the mental health system who were planting a lot of seeds around thinking about things differently and pushing back on force and all that. And so that was really helpful to pave the way for the Western Mass RLC and some of our work. So I think that helped. And then just how we've decided to invest some of our money. So because we have brought over a lot of people from the United Kingdom, for example, and if you're not already aware, if you have an English accent and you go talk to providers or what have you, you are suddenly <laughs> automatically more <prepared. laughs> so, um, we The way we've chosen to invest our money has been to do a lot of things like uh, there's something called the Maastricht interview training, which comes out of the hearing voices movement, which started in Europe. And we were the first ones to bring that to this country. And so by doing that, we had other people coming from other parts of this country to our space and have developed a lot of relationships and also with alternatives to suicide approach and so on. So I certainly don't see us as independently responsible for the what you referred to as a hotbed, but I think it's been a series of things that have given space to pushing back more. And, you know, I think also, I think that, you know, as much as the systems have a lot of power uh, and have a lot of, you know, ability to do damage to people who push back on them at times, I also think that our movements sometimes give up some of their power without even testing the waters to see what they could get away with because they've experienced such harm because they've internalized so many things. And we are a group of people, you know, we're lucky in that we got a critical mass of people in this, in this community who are willing to say like, you know what, if we lose something based on pushing back then maybe we weren't meant to have it right now, it's okay. But, it's more important that we keep pushing and that we speak our truth. And we've kind of just approached a lot of what we do is like, we will gain more by taking risks of losing than we will by being afraid constantly of what we might lose if we push. And I think that's been really hugely helpful to this community to have multiple people who come from that frame of mind. So it's not like we're super special. I think it's just been the right mix of people and the right distance from some of the most forceful <laughs> counter. I'm envious. I mean, 
I still fault myself for a lot of self-censorship. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, I think we all go down these paths and it's hard to imagine, you know, as much as I'm talking about like people do have some responsibility to push back at the same time, it makes total sense to me that people go through these systems and believe that they can't. And it's hard to hold someone. It's sort of like going back to that resilience conversation. Well, I guess if you were resilient enough, you would have figured this out on your own sooner, but like really how, <laughs> you know, if you don't intersect with the right people yeah, and you don't hear other people challenging and then there's this whole emotional process. So I think one of the first times we had Bob Whitaker come speak in the local area, one of my now coworkers was in the audience and she was very much, she was, still taking very high doses of psychiatric drugs that were pretty heavy-duty neuroleptics and was suddenly listening to someone say all this research all at once. It was not a gradual introduction. It was this like all at once introduction of how much you've been lied to. And her first response, which I think is normal, was not, thank you, Bob Whitaker. <laughs> you know, it was, I'm angry at you, Bob Whitaker. You're trying to screw something up for me and you must be lying because so many people in my life have told me this. How could it not possibly be true? Right. And so there starts with anger. And then honestly, a lot of people go to, into grief. You know, I can think of another woman I spoke to that was in one of our trainings that we were offering and talking about a trauma, you know, sort of a social model of trauma and social model of extreme states and why in many ways they make more sense than this very medicalized model. And she just said in the middle of the training, are you telling me that the last 10 years of my life didn't need to be this way? And that's a lot. Sure is, sure is. So you're in dialogue with activists in Europe mm -hmm. and I'm sure each country is a little bit different, but what would you say U.S. relative Western Europe? Where are they relative to where we are? Yeah, I don't know that there's an easy answer. I know you said at the beginning that they're much further along in certain ways, and I think that's true. So the Hearing Voices Movement, for example, started there and really developed their open dialogue in, you know, the northern Laplands of Finland, though, you know, bear in mind the rest of Finland's pretty much as screwed up as we are. You know, so there's these pockets of activity that are much further along. And some of that is about how the society is set up. So if you, I don't know if you're familiar with Daniel Mather and his films, uh, he did a film that's available for free on YouTube about open dialogue. And it was just him. He's a former therapist who practiced in New York City who got sick of the system and the way it was functioning and just picked up a video camera and started to go around and film people. And so he got the opportunity to go to Finland and meet with all the people involved with open dialogue. And I remember I, Mia Kurti, I think is the, the clinician from open dialogue that is in the scene. And he's asking her, he's like, do you ever get afraid that someone's going to say what you're doing, like not using psych drugs as the first intervention, all these things. Do you ever get afraid that because it's not what the rest of the country is doing, that they'll say that's not best practice and we can sue you. It's not exactly how he phrased it, but it was something like that. And she just like looked at him and like, cocked her head in sort of this confused way and said like what no like what why would I be afraid of that you know like the litigious nature of our country the way our country's 
health systems work in the way the liability is seen as such a driving force, I think with it holds us back from some of these things. So open dialogue is now an approach that they're trying to replicate in this country, but it's very hard to do it in a real way in the way that Finland has. So I think in that way, they're much further ahead and that they've got kind of the foundation to do those sorts of things that we don't have. And I don't know quite how to get us there. On the other hand, as far as things like peer support and some of the things that we're doing here, although a lot of peer support is very co-opted and, and not good, uh, that's much more developed here you know, for better and sometimes for worse, <laughs> you know, depending on how you look at it. So I think there is a certain give and take. I think there's a lot we could learn from each other still. I mean, in, in my wheelhouse with harm reduction, you know, the more I study it in Portugal or the Netherlands, you know, the, the presence of wraparound services, the availability of them seems to me the signature thing of harm reduction, mm -hmm. not Suboxone, but housing and education, what have you. <clears throat> Whereas here in Portland, you know, you can be on 16 milligrams of Suboxone a day for free, but you don't know where you're sleeping tonight. Yeah. And so it almost feels like it drives people into deeper despair. Um, I often wonder if, if this all comes down, well, not all of it, it's just overstatement, but uh, corporate personhood and lobbying. That in our system, the pharmaceutical companies are just like organized crime. And yeah, I mean, the pharmaceutical company has more lobbying dollars getting spent than the gun industry, than all sorts of industries in this country. It's, it's huge. Uh, the way that our economy and our healthcare system interacts is huge and goes beyond just it's not just that other countries offer free health insurance or have different systems. It's that, you know, that incentive to make as much money as possible with these sorts of things. And as I'm sure, you know, as you were basically speaking to when someone's basic needs aren't being met, like who the hell cares? Like what else you might be doing for them? I mean, we see that in our community all the time. We have something called uh, community bridgers. They go into, hospitals and they go into jails to support people to hopefully get out and then get you know regrounded in the community make new connections reconnect with old connections whatever they need but they don't give us the resources to get people homes they don't necessarily get give us resources to get people out of poverty so sometimes the system looks at us as if we're failing because you know the hospital did their job they gave them the medication they dealt with their mental illness or their problems with substances or whatever and why aren't you able to then sustain them in the community but the reality is like they went into the hospital not because of something wrong in their head they went into the hospital with something wrong in their life and you didn't do anything to fix that and now you've expected to like pay us like 15 16 maybe 20 bucks an hour and somehow we'll fix it all <laughs> i don't know yeah right um do you see changes happening on the, do you see a more clinically informed, a more informed clinical world? I mean, are there more, is there, I know it's not coming out of the social work and counseling programs, but are you seeing a rising tide of clinicians who are? Yeah, you know, it's always a little hard to tell if there's change happening or if 
there's just a change in communication happening. So people are a little more uh, readily finding each other. So it's a little hard to, to figure out which one of those is true. I think, you know, another thing that Europe certainly has over us is a much more developed critical psychiatry network, for example. There's a lot of clinicians who get together and support one another and develop perspectives and put them out in practice. Yeah. We had some money at one point to be able to go do some interviews in Europe and met a number of people there who are in clinical roles who are doing really great things that are not really quite happening at that level here. And, and yet, you know, although it's hard to tell if it's just about us hearing about it more, or if it's actually happening more, I think there is a growing number of clinicians who are questioning who are finding sites like Madden America or writing for sites like Madden America or the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care. You know, those things, there is a rise there, but there needs to be, I think, a greater effort to connect everybody and have them doing things together. Because as you, I think, said earlier, one of the things that happens to kind of best apples in the system is that they get in there, they try to do something different and then they get slapped down and they lose their energy and they either give in to doing it the awful way or they leave and they get out. And so one of the things we actually were had applied for a grant to bring together a conference, like sort of a critical psychiatry kind of conference that was really geared towards providers. And then COVID kind of canceled that all out. So we hope to pick up that thread at some point because I think it's so important that people find each other. We, uh, our, our film project that we're closest to finishing right now is called The Video Bridge. And in The Video Bridge, there's three groups. There's a group of people who've been in the system by force or choice or some combination. There's a group of providers, some in leadership roles, some in like very direct support roles. And then group three are funders and senior administrators. So we had like CEOs of hospitals. We had someone from SAMHSA. We had a medical director from our Department of Mental Health in group three. And the way it would work is they'd each talk as a group, not with the others, get filmed, and then we'd show clips of the films to the other groups and then film them responding. And we went around three times. Oh, there were a lot, wow. of, a lot uh, of really interesting things that developed out of that. But one of the most interesting things happened in the first round, which is group one came pretty hard at the system saying they never apologize. They've caused all this harm. And group two said, you know what? They're right. We want to apologize. And then group three, who we thought would be pretty upset with group one, was like, oh, you know, we understand that group one's upset. But what the hell's wrong with group two? Why are they apologizing? <laughs> and it was just it really struck me like this is often what providers are up against the force to stay in line and not be a part of the questioning is pretty high yeah and, and apparently there you're a benedict arnold if you agreed with group one yeah well i feel like i could talk to you for hours um to wrap things up, though, I'd like to hear about two or three things anywhere, internationally here, that really inspire you, that really, that are really amazing. Okay. Besides your own organization. You already <laughs> did that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, all right. So let me put that for a second. I mean, one thing, uh, although maybe this is sort of a cheat because, you know, we're certainly connected to it, but I'm, I'm really... I'm happy that the Hearing Voices movement is taking a greater hold in this country. So there is a website now, there is an organization, it's an unfunded organization, but Hearing Voices USA, 
I think I'm really glad that they have come into existence at this point. They've been around for a while. They're starting to look for ways to fund more events. They've had some webinars, uh, particularly towards family members. And actually just recently, uh, you know, so if you're familiar with Hearing Voices Network, it's really been focused on people who hear voices or see visions or what have you and creating supports for them. But it still was leaving family members with nowhere really to turn than say NAMI, et cetera. So you had, you know, the, the adult children often finding some alternative and then still getting pressed by their family members to stay with the medical model. And so at this point, Hearing Voices USA has started to develop, and I think we'll soon be publishing a charter for family groups and, and, and creating more access for family members who, kind of know the medical system is not working for their kid because their kid's still struggling but have nowhere else to turn so i think that's so important similar yeah. to creating more space for providers we need more space for family members or else how can we blame them when they're feeling desperate for going to what is available to them so i'm really happy about that yeah um i wish i could say i was happy about like how peer support is developing in the country but honestly i'm sort of scared by it so much of it is co-opted and still speaking the medical language. But, you know, I, I guess I am hopeful and glad about the developments of the peer respite networks that are developing in this country. That is something that, say, Europe doesn't have a lot of. And peer respites are certainly not the end-all be-all, but they do provide this opportunity to avoid going into a psychiatric facility where people often have no choice but to at least pretend to accept these medicalized ideas about themselves, you know, to have a space to go to instead of that is so powerful. And some of the peer respites are quite co-opted, but now in places like Wisconsin and other parts of the country, there are peer respites that are really trying hard to stick with the vision of what this was meant to be, which is a sort of way to help people never get into those systems or to help liberate them from them. So I'm really hopeful about that and and hoping that 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 can really grow and create more space for people and you know i think there's been this talk about in some ways how to make some of that a bit underground too like if there's not there's only 30 some odd peer respites in the country and some of them are better than others you know so that's not very many but there is also you know conversation happening about yeah does it all need to be funded could we create this sort of network of people who are willing to just be with other people and and create these communities where where we support one another because i think yes yeah, somehow we've got to get to this point where communities are willing to come together it's not all about you know the one program that got funded yeah i could not agree more i mean within the world of recovery or substance abuse you know we live in this false binary of incarceration or treatment and community that's that's your prevention and that's your recovery ultimately. Yep. So, well, Sarah, this has been a delight. I hope it's the first of several conversations. Um, <laughs> I am happy knowing that there's somebody like you out there doing this work, and uh, this particular community are, is full of people who would identify as psychiatric survivors. So, great. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm glad that we finally were able to connect and do this. Yeah, me too. Me too. We've got some. We've got some good mutual friends who wanted us to finally meet. Great. So, have a good day.
Thanks, you too. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.